0: And I help run a company called Impact Due Diligence Investigations. If you need anything in terms of investigative services, feel free to contact me at Impact. If I can't help you personally, I'll certainly direct you to the right person or agency. All right, guys, we're back at it. We had a big response from last week's episode on the Jeffrey Curley case, and we focused on one of the pedophile murderers, Sal Sakari, in that episode. I just wanted to let you know, again, this episode that you're going to hear today has a lot of graphic content, and it's about crimes against children and its sexual nature. Again, it's very graphic, be advised. And I also wanted to apologize for the choppy nature of last week's podcast. I think I mentioned I had to get up and leave it. I've got to put these cases down, especially this one. This one really gets to me and walk away a little bit. So it may have seemed a little bit disjointed. For that, I apologize. So that kind of got me thinking, right? If this gives me this type of anxiety, imagine the detectives, the police officers who have to work these cases. They find Jeffrey Curley in that Rubbermaid box, right? That they filled with cement. And they do their job for that day. Then they go home to dinner with their families. Can you imagine what that's like? You're sitting across from your 10 year old son, and you just pulled somebody else's 10 year old son out of the water in coastal Maine. I pray for these people. I pray for our first responders, our police officers, all of them. They are literally the line between society and chaos, between being able to take your children to the park and roving bands of gangs. That's the difference. That's what they do. And I'm concerned for their mental health. I think those people who are involved in the Jeffrey Curley case and similar cases like this need to be checked for PTSD because it's just insane the pressure these guys are under. And using the term guys means girls too. I just mean the profession. So no need to email me on that sexist statement. There'll be others. You can do that later. But if you do need to get a hold of me, Email is the best way, barry at Confidential.net. That's barry at Confidential.net. Love hearing from you guys. I hear from several people regularly. Feel free to email me and I'll try to get right back with you, all right? All right, guys, we're on to Charles Janes. Brace yourselves. All right, guys, I think I need to correct myself from the previous episode with Sal Sakari. I think I had mentioned that Charles James had sex, Jeez, uh, it's hard for me to say these words, that Charles James had sex with Jeffrey Curley's body in the back of the car at the hardware store just after he was killed. What I actually think happened, what I know happened now, is Sal Sakari had sexual gratification with the corpse in the backseat because his DNA was all over the backseat. He's always maintained that he never had sex with Jeffrey Curley's corpse, but that's simply not true. Charles James did have sex with the corpse. Jeez, I just can't believe I'm outlining this like this. He did have sex with the corpse, but at his apartment in Manchester, New Hampshire, and I did get some emails talking about evidence in this case. The evidence is overwhelming, so I didn't get into the minutia of it. But some of the evidence that was found at Charles Jane's Manchester, New Hampshire apartment was Jeffrey Curley's shirt that he was wearing, Charles Jane's semen all over the kitchen, and Charles Jane's fingerprints on a wooden spoon that they used to stir the cement lime mixture that these pedophiles purchased to entomb Jeffrey Curley. Also, the receipts used for the Rubbermaid bins, the Lime, and these were bought at several different stores, and they found these in Sakari's car as they were questioning him about the homicide, and that was brilliant because one detective passed the receipts on to the other detective who was in the interview room, and Sakari was kind of getting keyed up, and he didn't want to speak anymore, and the cops just put it on him. Sal, do you want to tell us about the Rubbermaid bin you bought? And this was 97, so I don't know if there was video at the store. But that's when Sakari broke. And he confessed. He fully confessed in this case. That's the biggest evidence there is. There's a mountain of physical evidence against both of them. Not to mention the confession, right? Do you need much more than that? Sal Sakari attempted to have his confession stricken from the record citing pressure from the police and all that and that's actually good from my point of view because when there's appeals when there's hearings there's a lot of evidence that i can obtain that isn't usually available to me so a lot of this comes right from the court record guys this was an open and shut case so we've covered the abduction and murder of jeffrey Curley. i'm going to give you a brief overview of it right now but it was covered in just the previous episode a little more in depth but i will give you what i can now it's just horrifying guys so brace yourselves so it's october 1st 1997 i believe it was a school day from jeffrey and he was at his grandmother's house and that's where he came into contact with sal sakari sal sakari lived in the neighborhood and somehow jeffrey caught his eye I'm not going to leave that as a mystery. Sal Sakari's is a pedophile, and he fancied this little boy. That's what happened here. I'm not going to dance around it anymore. But 3.30, 3.15 rolls around. It was 3.15, he leaves his grandmother's house telling him that he's got something to do. You know, it's kind of funny. If this all didn't happen, a 10-year-old telling him he got something to do, right? Like he's got an appointment at his attorney's office, so he's going to go see his accountant. I bet the grandmother kind of chuckled, okay, Jeffrey, go take care of your business. But Jeffrey Curley leaves the house about 3.15. Shortly thereafter, he's picked up by Sal Sicari and Charles Janes, and I believe this was prearranged. Actually, I think Sal Sicari saw him that day in the neighborhood and called Charles Janes, and today was going to be the day. Sal Sicari likes to play off that Charles Janes was the driving force in this. And it may be true to some extent, but Sakari picked out Jeffrey Curley and he set this plan in motion on this day. So they had been grooming Jeffrey Curley for quite some time. Jeffrey recently had his bike stolen. I don't know if these two doofuses had anything to do with it, but Charles Jane said, I'm going to get you a new bicycle. You deserve a new bicycle and I'm going to give you 50 bucks. They're taking McDonald's. James has got this 1990s-style Fleetwood Cadillac, big, impressive. And these two would treat Jeffrey Curley like one of the gang. At one point, it's stated that Jeffrey Curley said to these two guys on the day he was murdered by them that they were his best friends. Can you imagine that? All right, so they pick up Jeffrey, and it's not an abduction. They coerce him into the car. they don't really coerce him. He gets in of his own volition, but they've been plotting this for quite some time. They leave from East Cambridge and go to a gas station where Charles Jane soaks a rag with gas, and they go behind a supermarket or somewhere private, and this is just where it gets hairy. Charles James ends up jumping in back, and it's just harrowing at this point, so he murders Jeffrey by putting a gasoline-soaked rag over his mouth and using his obese, 250-pound body to basically push the air out of Jeffrey. And they do that. He's unconscious. At a certain point, they go to several stores after this, right? They go to an NHD hardware, a Home Depot, a Bradley's, and they buy tape. They buy a Rubbermaid bin. They buy Lime. And it's all on Charles Jane's father's credit card. Yeah, these guys are geniuses. So, what apparently happened in the back of the supermarket where they killed Jeffrey was Sal Sicari at a certain point jumps in back and sexually molests the corpse to the point of ejaculation because Sal Sicari's semen DNA was found all over the back seat. It's not believed that Charles Jane's sexually molested the boy's corpse at this location but after a while in the evening about 1030 ish or whatever p.m so this was an all-day affair for these guys and they go to work believe it or not so at about 10:30, they're up at manchester new hampshire where charles james has some clandestine apartment or something and at that point charles james has sex with the corpse that's been dead for several hours now, man, it's just unbelievable. His DNA was found all over the kitchen floor. Jeffrey's genes were found in the apartment. Fingerprints were found on a spoon that Charles James used to create the tomb in which Jeffrey was placed. That includes cement, that includes lime. They threw him in a 50-gallon rubber-made bin, and they taped that all up all that. So I think this goes on into the early morning hours. The early morning hours, they travel up to the seacoast. They're already in Manchester, New Hampshire, keep in mind. So they travel towards the coast. And near the New Hampshire Maine border, they throw the body out at South Berwick, Maine. So at this point, I kind of thank God for Charles Jane's and Sal Sicari's stupidity the inbred stupidity within them because they may have gotten away with this otherwise. It's just a horrible plan. I really don't even know what it was. It seems to be just a frenzy of pedophilia in this case. There was no real attempt to get away. DNA is everywhere. They recovered the body several days later after a massive attempt. They got on to Sal Sakari right away after this because Sal Sicari is stupid and he went up and interjected himself into the investigation. And believe me, cops like nothing better than that. And after he did that for the police, other than the harrowing details, which are enough to instill PTSD into the toughest people, they went forward with their investigation and they did a hell of a job. But I don't think it was super difficult because these guys were just so stupid. There was evidence everywhere and they locked them both up pretty quickly. Charles James. Actually was locked up on a warrant before they charged him with murder so they could get him in custody. I think they were afraid this goof was gonna flee, and if he could have, he would have. It would also come to light during the trial that Charles James was a member of NAMBLA. That acronym sounds harmless. It is not, I assure you. That stands for National Association of Man Boy Love Association. It's simply a pedophile operation who's trying to direct public policy to make it appear that adults having sex with children is just another sexual preference. There are segments of American society and uh, everywhere, I guess, that believes this is a fact. I just can't comprehend it. When you see evil, you have to name evil. Nambler is evil, okay? What more is there? I don't know. So I had mentioned previously the coverage, the press coverage on this case, and it was wall-to-wall. This case had galvanized Massachusetts and a lot of the rest of the country as well. It was so enraging for people what happened here. Almost immediately, the Massachusetts legislature took up debate on the death penalty, and in Massachusetts, I can't tell you how big that is. In 1975, the death penalty was abolished in Massachusetts as being unconstitutional. This was the first attempt to rethink that because these two people deserve the death penalty and guilt wasn't in question. It's not like some of these innocence projects that people do now, you know, there's some innocent people in jail, I get it, there have been some innocent people on death row, but this so galvanized the community. People in Massachusetts wanted these two put down, and rightfully so. When it came down to a vote, there was one vote that tipped the scales against the death penalty, and that vote was cast by Representative John Slattery of Peabody. He was a Democratic backbencher for most of his career. I don't know what ever became of him. But this is his claim to fame, we don't have the death penalty in Massachusetts because of him. And I'm sure he's celebrated for that in certain circles, but not here at Boston Confidential, I'm sure. So what a lot of people don't remember about this case is Sal Sikari. yes, he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He was convicted of first-degree murder. Charles James was convicted of second-degree murder. And with that conviction, you have an opportunity for parole. And he had served 23 years, and the first time he was up for parole was 2020. So this guy just never goes away for this poor family. They've got to testify at every goddamn parole hearing from now until this guy dies at, what, 70, 80, right? He committed this crime when he was in his 20s, so... This is going to be a lifelong thing with Robert Curley's going to have to testify at parole hearings in perpetuity for the guy who murdered his son. It's just crazy. It's not fair. But fairness in Massachusetts seems to be reserved for defendants rather than families of victims. And that's something that needs to change, guys. But the Curley family doesn't shy away from the parole hearing. They were at it in 2020. I think it's like every five or six years, so we won't have to see him again for a little while, but the Curley family consisted of Barbara Curley, the mom, Robert Curley, the dad, and there's Sean Curley, a brother as well, and Robert Curley, the dad, kind of takes the lead in this, he's been a staunch advocate for victims' rights and had argued all the way to the general court of Massachusetts for the death penalty on these two guys. And actually, it fell short, and I feel horrible for the Curley family on that. But this just destroyed these guys. I do believe Barbara and Robert were divorced by this time, but I'm not entirely sure. There's not a lot of information on the family dynamic, and that might be for a reason. So I'm not going to pry on it. The information that I did come up with These were just blue-collar working people in East Cambridge trying to live their best life, and two maniacs stumbled upon their son and savaged him, and they deserve the ultimate penalty, guys. Read the details of this case. Go to the items I posted in the first episode of the Jeffrey Curley case, and you'll you'll see how evil these two people are, and it's an everyday evil. At one point, Sal Sicari said to his girlfriend, and this was in the court record, she had said, don't you feel remorse for killing someone? And he says, I could give two fucks. It's like a bowl of cereal. I could eat it or I could walk away. That's how society should treat Sal Sicari and Charles Jaynes. They should be put in a pit and we should all walk away. So after the first episode, I had a few friends of mine that are in the corrections business, corrections officers, and these are frontline workers and supervisors who know Charles Janes. Charles Janes reportedly says, he'll give it right back to you when inmates call him a child molester, a child murderer. He gives it right back. Naturally, this goofball is in protective custody because he'd get shanked otherwise, but he'll say, yeah. I did it on that day, and I'd do it again today, and I loved it. So this is the type of guy Charles James is, and he's now become just a consummate inmate loser, right? He filed to have his name changed. I'm not even going to give you the name change, right? The name he wanted to be called, because it's just ludicrous, because it is reported that Charles James, at some point during this incarceration, has become a Wiccan. In Wiccans, if you're not aware of this religion, in quotation marks, that they have to eat certain foods. So the inmates see this as an opportunity to get certain and indifferent foods from the commissary, from the kitchen or whatever. It's just a con. It's just an inmate con. Everybody knows it. The judge denied his request to change his name to Joe Abracadabra Because he said that he was trying to avoid the repercussions of the murder that he committed on Jeffrey Curley. For once in Massachusetts, a judge got it right. Also, part of that Wiccan scam is when you apply to have your name changed, right, there's typically several court appearances which the jail or prison has to bring you to. So that's like a day at the park for these guys, right? hey guys, we're going on a field trip, we're going into court. So you go to court, maybe now you get a submarine sandwich from the place across the street from the courthouse and you don't have to eat that slop that is so deservingly fed to you each day. So my research on Charles Jane's in prison has alerted me to the fact that he has 40 disciplinary items in his file. Now, these items range from the everyday disrespect of corrections officers to, you know, everything you can imagine what inmates do to each other and for each other, I guess. Charles James is serving his sentence at a medium security facility. And if you want to know how bad they have it, I know I've said this before, but Google two terms, Howie Carr and Lifer's Club, and Howie's him. I'll see if I can find it. I'll put it in the show notes, but it'll show you, it'll illustrate exactly how hard these convicted murderers have it in prison. And to be quite frank, they try to feather their nest. I guess that's human nature, right? But these guys have birthday parties. You know, it's Charles James and some other monster celebrating somebody else's birth. It's just kind of gross to me, right? And they do all these foolish things. They have speakers come in to speak to the lifers' club. I think in Howie's Column, he portrayed that they had a massive Christmas party with pot roast and all kinds of stuff. So it's just insane. They'll do anything to keep these inmates quiet, and it's just sick. So if you think Charles James is out busting rocks for the rest of his life, he isn't. He's got an easy skate in there, and he's in protective custody. So... The only other people in his pod, I guess, are fellow child molesters and murderers and just the worst of the worst. So naturally, when I was researching Charles Jane's prison record, I also threw in Sal Sakari. If you're ever looking for somebody in a prison, and I think it's nationwide, I use it mostly for Massachusetts, but it's a site called Vinelink. But the term I always use to go to Vinelink is Massachusetts inmate locator. And that'll bring you there's a couple drop-down boxes and all that it's pretty easy to use so i discovered that sal sakari is actually serving his time in florida i don't know why that is but charles james is serving his sentence at the medium security facility the old colony correctional center i believe they call it in bridgewater massachusetts and he's in protective custody there and just an aside I discovered during my research on Sal Sakari during the previous podcast, his brother, Robert Sakari, is also a pedophile who had been convicted of raping a 10-year-old boy. There's a story, I believe it's in one of the South Coast newspapers, that illustrates his nasty life of drug addiction and child rape. So be advised, he's out there as well. So all the way up to his parole hearing in 2020, Charles James had denied killing Jeffrey Curley. He put it on Sal Sakari. He couldn't deny he was there, right? And when you're up for parole, if you haven't taken responsibility for your crime, there is absolutely no way the parole board's going to let you out, especially somebody as infamous as Charles James. So this is just a calculation for him. Everybody knows he did it. There's DNA, there's all kinds of evidence, right? But this is all a game to him. So he goes to the parole hearing, and don't forget, that's another day out of prison for this pedophile, right? So he goes to the parole hearing and he says, I am here to take responsibility for the murder of Jeffrey Curley. But he doesn't take full responsibility for it. He says in the parole hearing that. Yes, he was attracted to Jeffrey, and he wanted to have sex with him, but it was Sal Sikari's idea to commit the homicide. And I don't believe that. Both of these guys are as guilty as sin. So does it even really matter? And this guy was so flippant during his parole hearing. I don't know how they do it with these parolees or potential parolees. It's just sickening. So he goes on, and he tells the story about, yes, He met Jeffrey Curley that April, and he immediately began grooming him. This was a plan for months in the making, guys. And he deserves to go down for the dirt nap for that. This was premeditated. It was savage. It was beyond comprehension. And there is no problem. There is no moral problem putting those two down, putting them out of society's misery. There just isn't. There is no redeeming value in either of these two. So my God. Charles James goes on in the parole hearing, and he basically said he wanted to see if he could get away with it like on TV. It's such a sin that the Curleys have to sit through this circus, this charade of parole hearings, right? Man, what if these guys got the electric chair two, three years after this crime? Evidence is overwhelming, and they're gone, and the Curleys don't have to do that anymore. I think that's something that should be factored in to these cases. You've got to always be on alert. Did we miss a parole hearing? Did we get the email? Because when they want to parole somebody, sometimes they don't let the families know. There's a myriad of cases just like that where people are sitting at home and they hear the murderer of their loved one has been let out of prison without them knowing about it. It happens all the time. And I just think it's a sin, especially in this case. And if we're not gonna put people like that to death, these guys should be in a supermax prison, right? Because anytime they talk to somebody, they contaminate them with their evil. And at the end of the parole hearing, one of the curlies said that Charles Janes is simply the devil, and I believe that. He is wholly evil. For some reason, we've become numb to the crime of murder. It doesn't shock us anymore, and it should. It's completely absurd that our tax money has to go and feed and educate these two goofballs who are never getting out of prison. They should be under the prison if we're not going to put them in a grave. All right, guys, I think I'm going to leave you there. These two episodes have taken a lot out of me, and I want to state a fact here that my anxiety over this case, these two episodes, does not compare to what the police do to what the EMTs do, to what the prosecutors do. They have to walk around in this blood. I'm inconvenienced because I care about this case or I have some anxiety about it, but that does not come close to what other people go through. And I can't imagine, I simply can't imagine what the Curleys go through. So don't think for a second that I'm trying to equate my minor anxiety to what the police went through in this case. Other cases, what the curlies go through. It's nothing. Don't worry about me. I'm glad I got through them though. And if you need to get a hold of me on this case or any other, my email is barry at bostonconfidential.net. And other than that, guys, we'll see you on the flip side.